Hey, it's Doug Sandler from the Turnkey Podcast. When I'm not creating my own podcast episodes, I'm listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast, hosted by Robert Miller. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. My guest today is Mark Shearer. Mark has been a celebrated global reporter for ABC and CNN. He has covered everything from rock stars to wars and famine and all different countries. A remarkable career. And also, he started out in one of his iterations doing college hockey for the New York Times. And so I picked a song today to be the song that I feature in this episode that's called Slapshot. Because let's face it, how do you score most of your goals in hockey? It's by Slapshot. And if you'd like a free download of this song, just go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash roadmap hyphen song. And now, please join me in welcoming to the Follow Your Dream podcast, Mark Shearer. Thank you, Robert. It's a thrill to be here. So tell me, was it your dream when you were young to be a journalist? You know, I'm going to upend the concept of your podcast right out of the shoot here. Uh-oh. It turns out I did have a dream, but I didn't know it for the first uh, maybe 20 years of my life. And then I realized what I really wanted to be, and I took steps to to achieve it. And in a nutshell, basically, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left high school and went to college. I had an enormous amount of fun. You mentioned hockey. I'm a hockey fanatic, but I was playing soccer at the time, and I loved sports. So I said, well, geez, what am I going to be? I said, I know. I'll, I'll be a phys ed major, and I'll be a coach. So I went off to college and and tried that. But after about three years, this was in the 60s, my hair was very long. My politics had moved to the left. I was smoking pot. And I realized that my student teaching uh, stint was coming up and no respectable high school anywhere would want me to come in and be a a phys ed teacher, student teacher, the way, you know, the, the way I was, the way I looked and the way I felt back then. So something had to be done. And I was fortunate enough to have a friend who had either dropped out or flunked out of a couple colleges already. And he said, you know, I was ready to drop out because I I didn't know what to do. And he said, well, why don't you change your major? And I said, to what? And he said, well, you wrote for the high school paper, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I enjoyed that. So I changed my major to journalism and the rest is history. And as you said in that wonderful introduction, the history of my career just blows my mind because it was so diverse. I went from, like you said, covering famine to wars to interviewing rock stars and movie stars. And, uh, you know, it's I've I've been one of the most fortunate people that I know of (laughs) in this business, whether they know it or not. (laughs) That's terrific. I want to go back to the hockey thing for a second. Where did you go to uh, college? I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio. They were the national champions, the Division I national champions in 1984, long after I had left. All right. Well, hold on a second, because I went to college in Boston, Uh and I went to Boston University, and BU always had an incredibly good 
college hockey team. And every year, you probably know this, but maybe the listeners don't, there was a there is a tournament in Boston called the Beanpot Tournament. Mm-hmm. It's Boston University, Boston College, Northeastern, and Harvard that are all competing in a round-robin thing. They did it at the Boston Garden for years. I don't even know what that's called anymore. <laughs> and I used to love to go see those games because there's nothing better, in my opinion, than college hockey. I totally agree. And when I was covering it for the New York Times, I got to cover several bean pots and a couple of uh, frozen fours, as they call them. And uh, by the way, your arch rival, Boston College, is to this day coached by Jerry York, who was the coach of Bowling Green that won his first national championship when he was at Bowling Green. Then he moved to BC the big time, and uh, the rest is hockey history. They had a guy at BU that was the coach there for about 100 years, Jack Jack Parker. Parker. Fantastic. I mean, he was the coach in the 60s when I was going to school, and he was the coach (laughs) as of not too long ago still. Yep. Yep. He only recently resigned. Jack Parker and Jerry York, have they, they encapsulate the history of college hockey, which I, I like better than the professional game. I agree with you. It's the best. Okay. I had to get that in because that was just <laughs> like a, a really important piece to me. Okay. So you switch majors. You, you decided you couldn't be a phys ed major because you were smoking pot. You had long hair. It was the 1960s. Nothing unusual about that, I must say. We were kind of all in that position. And so you studied journalism or you got a job in journalism? I switched majors. As a result, managed to cram four years of college into five. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I immediately realized that was where I belonged. However, I took the print sequence and I thought I wanted to be a newspaper man. The first job I got out of college was at radio. And not only did I have to quickly learn how to do radio news uh, because I hadn't even worked for the college radio station. I was too shy. I thought I would, I would uh, be a fumbling, bumbling idiot in front of a microphone. And I still am from time to time. But I, re- I got free record albums at the radio station. Uh, so I said, well, this is kind of fun. I think I'll be a radio newsman. Okay. So what radio station was this? First job was 20 miles up the road from my college in Toledo, Ohio. And I realized as soon as I got into radio news, uh, I, I also did weekend disc jockeying, so I, I had my share of spinning the discs for a while. But I always said to my employers, I just want to run a news department. I want to build a news department. And they, they let me. But then I realized that what you do is you climb the market ladder in, in broadcasting. So three years later, I got a job in Cincinnati at an amazing radio station, WEBN. Then I jumped to Philadelphia, WMMR, a metro media station, just like WNEW was in New York. Then I went to Chicago. And then in 1983, I won the lottery. There was a full-page advertisement in Broadcasting Magazine that said, if you think this is the greatest job in radio news, it could be yours. We want someone to go anywhere in the world where anything of interest to young people is happening. And I applied for it. They whittled it down to like five people that they flew to New York and interviewed one after another. And amazingly, I won. And it was, they were true to their word. They sent me around the world. It was one of the best jobs in broadcasting. People think television is the glamorous side of broadcasting. I went everywhere television people went around the world, but I didn't have two two or three crew people behind me carrying, you know, heavy cameras and tape decks. I just had a little portable uh, tape deck in a bag over my shoulder and 
went to Africa, Russia, Rio de Janeiro, just an, an amazing job. Now, that, that was CNN, are we talking about, or what? No, 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 that was ABC Radio News, the network. Okay. They created this job called Reporter on the Road. So they actually put an ad in a newspaper of some kind or a journal of some kind? Trade magazine. Find somebody like this. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, and, 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 and all the while I had friends saying, oh, sure, so you're just doing radio news until you can get into television news. I said, no. It's an end in, in itself. I love radio news. I love painting pictures. I love the pressure that, that you put on to condense a complicated story to 30, 35 makes you a good writer. When you throw out all the nonsense and you have 35 seconds to tell a story and you're on the scene and the story is unfolding around you, sometimes involving gunfire or this tear gas or whatever. We're going to talk about that. You know, I have some experience on the radio as well. When I was at Boston University, I was on the campus radio station. I was a disc jockey. And my interest was playing the music, but we had to do everything. So we had to read the news. We used to take the news off the teletype machine, which sure. I'm sure you remember. Oh, That's yeah. the thing, you know, like when 60 Minutes is on the air and you hear tick, 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 in the background. That's the teletype machine. That's where you got your news from. We used to rip it off. We'd read the news. And we do the weather. We did everything on that. I was my own engineer as well. And I loved it. It was so much fun. Me too. <laughs> and uh, another alumnus of WBUR, your station, of course, was Howard Stern. Right. And when I got, uh, when I segued finally into television and then into covering entertainment news instead of covering wars and famine, uh, I was on Howard Stern's show many, many times because to interview him uh, when I worked at CNN in particular, he would never do interviews off the air. He said, if you want to interview me, you have to come on my show. So I came on his show many, many times and we had a lot of fun together because I knew what he needed for radio because I'd been part of a morning radio news team, a, a morning zoo kind of thing. So I gave him exactly what he wanted and uh, we had some great times. All right. So. You you went with ABC. Now you're starting to see the world. Okay, how'd you become a rock star in radio? Well, by by winning the lottery, so to speak, uh, getting that job. It was a high profile job, and ABC Radio News was true to its to to its word. They sent me around the world. I was backstage at Live Aid, for example. A month earlier, I had I had not been at the USA for Africa. We are the world recording because no press was invited. That happened during the Grammy Awards one winter in 1985, and nobody knew about it till the next day. But a month or two later, I met the um, 747 cargo plane loaded with supplies, food and emergency supplies that were bought with the funds raised by USA for Africa. And we went to Ethiopia and Sudan and, and went out into the desert and watched those supplies in use, saving lives. So that was the that was an example of what a great job that was at ABC Radio News. One minute I'm at a rock concert, the next minute I'm in a desert in in the middle of a famine. As a news person, it doesn't get any better than that. You were hired though to be kind of the young person's reporter because I was young then. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they figured young people wanted a different kind of news than the old fogies at that time. Exactly. Exactly. So, did they define your work or did you choose the assignments? A combination of both. My first year, as a matter of fact, they sent me out to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada for a Boy Scout jamboree. Now, 
coming out of this, uh, you know, rock and roll radio world, I was like, well, why are you sending me to this? This is kind of not what I thought you'd be talking about. And indeed, um, it wasn't a great story. But I, on the other hand, a month later, someone, the, the editor said, hey, U.S. Marines are currently in Beirut, Lebanon on a peacekeeping mission. U.S. Marines are 18 and 19 years old. They're young people. Go to Beirut, hang out with the Marines, see what it's like. So there I am. I actually came under mortar fire briefly up in the hills above Beirut. But it was a you know there was a combination of me. In fact, I was under a lot of pressure. Pitch stories. That's how I got the job. Anybody who wanted that job had to say, "Imagine you've had the job for the past um, six months. What would you have covered? Imagine you have the job now. What will you cover?" And I had to like you know put on my I'd gaze into the crystal ball and and try to figure out what kinds of stories they wanted to hear me pitch. So I got good at pitching stories. So they, they, you're sent to a war zone, as you just described. Do you have to kind of figure out what the news is there, or do they tell you this is what we want you to cover? This is the angle that we'd like you to take. No, I automa- I knew, for example, that one of the things I wanted to do a radio news story on while I was in Beirut was a, a trailer, like a uh, what do you call it? Uh, what are the big trailers that are on those cargo ships? Uh, what are they called? The whatever that you know, you could live inside one. Big the, containers the Marines, of some sort, you say? Shipping containers, yes. The Marines sent a shipping container wherever the Marines are for an extended period of time. And inside is a radio station. And there were two Marines who were disc jockeys playing rock music for on a, on a very limited uh, um, broadcast circuit for all the Marines there. Good morning, Vietnam, huh? <laughs> exactly. So I, there, I said, here's a story. And I went and I interviewed the DJs. And I asked them, by the way, what's the most requested song right now? And it was the police king of pain because Marines are tough. They're all about risking their lives. And they love that song, King of Pain. Were you on the road constantly during this period of your life? I would love to be able to say that because the title of the job was reporter on the road. But no, I usually would be there after I spent two weeks in Beirut. I would come back to New York City. And in the downtime before another road assignment appeared, in one way or another, they would have sent me to interview uh, the latest, uh, whoever had the latest rock album, like uh, uh, Peter Gabriel or, or, or the police. And I had come from a hard news background, but I had worked at rock radio stations where when the when the rock band came to town to play the local sports arena, they'd come by the station in the afternoon and the DJs would do the interviews. But I'm in the newsroom ripping wire copy, like you said, and I would listen to those interviews. So I picked up how you how you might go about interviewing musicians of course i love music i have i play a little guitar myself not not great i would never qualify for your band uh, <laughs> not that you would ask but the point being i love music enough to know how to learn how to interview musicians and so that was perfect for the later segue into entertainment news all right so at this point we're talking this is the 80s the early 80s or so yes Exactly. All right. Who who were your favorite interviews at that time? Um, it's funny. Uh, I got to interview just about every musician I admired and some that I didn't. Um, <laughs> but when I'm asked, like, wh- wh- what was, you know, the most memorable interview, let's put it that way. It was actually in the 70s when I was in Toledo, Ohio, and just learning the business. I got to interview Muhammad Ali, a brief Ooh. one-on-one at a, uh, a press conference promoting a fight 
against a um, what they what they call in the boxing business a tomato can. Uh, Chuck Webner. Chuck Webner. The Bayonne Bleeder. If I remember, he didn't get knocked out, right? No, he didn't. And 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 a guy watching that fight got the idea. Hey, what if the what if the Chuck Webner type beat the champ? And that guy watching that was Sylvester Stallone, and he wrote a screenplay called Rocky based on that fight. But but Muhammad Ali, and and there's a follow up to that years later in in the uh, in the 90s when a documentary about the fight in Zaire against uh, the uh, the Rumble in the Jungle as as it was called, when that documentary was released. Ali uh, was present at Radio City Music Hall for the premiere, and he came down the line of TV stations where producers and reporters were were set up. And I was uh, there for CNN, and everybody's asking the same thing. You know, what do you think about the documentary? How are you feeling these days? He was fighting off Parkinson's, but he was still pretty spry. And I said, I'm going to do something different. When he came in front of me, I started doing. I put my hands up around my face <laughs> and bobbing and weaving and saying, "Come on, come on, champ! I know you still got it. Show me what you got. Come on." And he was like a perfect comedian. He paused. He looked from left to right at people like, and he looked at me and he took his finger and he twirled it beside his head and pointed it at me and said, you crazy. crazy." (laughs) So he gave me, you know, exactly what I was looking for. The most exciting sporting event that I've ever been at was a heavyweight title fight. I got invited to a heavyweight title fight in Atlantic City. It was George Foreman against Evander Holyfield. Wow. And I was given, along with the people I was with, ringside seats. And, you know, for anybody that hasn't been at a heavyweight title fight, not only do you hear, you feel what's happening. I mean, when they hit each other, the sweat's flying into the fourth row and the groans and, you know, the sounds, the, the lights, the whole, it was an amazing experience. I mean, you don't even have to be a fan of boxing. I know a lot of people aren't a fan of boxing but back then boxing was was a real event oh my god yeah the big fight at uh, the fraser fight at madison square garden brought out all the all the vips in the entire city uh i did not get to go to any one of those though i'm envious okay so you you got muhammad ali that's unbelievable tell me about some of the rock stars that you oh you know it the best thing was um Towards the end of my days at ABC Radio News, they actually had to phase out my job because the network was changing hands. Uh, Disney bought it. And, uh, you know, to service debt, they were laying people off left and right. But the Rolling Stones were, were coming out of semi-retirement and uh, uh, launching the Steel Wheels Tour. And ABC Radio Networks worked out a deal where they would be the official broadcaster of this tour. And so they had a brilliant idea. They would start a, a nightly series of newscasts about the Rolling Stones tour. And I and another producer at ABC were hired to produ- produce this Rolling Stones newscast and to fill time when they on the nights when they weren't performing. During the nights they were performing, we call our, our friends at FM radio stations in the towns where they were and said, how did it go tonight? How was the set? You know, how was traffic? Were there any incidents? Stuff like that, like true newsmen. And then um, on the nights when there was no concert, we had to stockpile interviews. So they flew us to places like Kansas City, Boston, to one at a time interview the, the band members. They didn't want to bring them all together. They had too much to do. But one at a time, we we went around and interviewed Mick and Keith and Charlie and, and Ronnie. And, uh, you know, they're one of my favorite bands. So I, that's that's one of the highlights, I would say. 
I'll tell you about the, you may have, I know you, you're a good interviewer. You might've been asking, what about the one that got away? And I've got one for you. Let me hear I it. thought for a brief moment of time, I was scared stiff because I was told I was going to interview Bob Dylan. And what, what made me scared was this simple question. What's the first question you ask Bob Dylan? What would you, I mean, I started thinking about that. So how am I going to start this? Because if you start off on the wrong foot, you're going to get a lousy interview. But but where do you start? You know, so Bob, tell me about the early days. When did you discover you might be a folk singer? You know? <laughs> and he was promoting his album um, uh, in the 90s. Blood uh, on the, the Tracks? I don't know which one. No, no that was uh, earlier. Uh, anyway, um, Time Out of Mind, actually, Time was the, the title. Okay. And he gave an interview to Time Magazine, and the publicist for Columbia Records said, okay, you're next. Like next week we'll be doing it. Next week they called and said he's decided not to do any more interviews. I was like, I was simultaneously relieved but incredibly bummed out because that's the one you want to interview. You know, it's funny. Again, back when I was in college, similarly to what you just talked about, I was with the radio station, as I said, and they gave me a portable tape recorder and a microphone. And when rock groups would come into town, they would say, why don't you go and interview them? And it always got me into the venue, which was the thing that I really wanted. So one day they asked me to interview this young guy from England, the singer named Joe Cocker. Okay. And he was there with the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, yeah. Leon yeah. Russell and Rita Coolidge. It was a wonderful tour. And uh, I went into his hotel room and I interviewed him for about a half an hour. And I didn't think anything of it. And I went back, you know, now I'm looking at the rehearsal that's going on. And this this Frenchman comes up to me and says, uh, I saw that you uh, interviewed uh, Joe Cocker. I said, yes, I did. He says, uh, well, I'd like to use that interview. I'd like to hear that interview. I said, uh, okay, fine. And he gave me his card. I had no idea who he was or what it would make a difference about. Anyway, like a, a stupid college kid, I threw the card away, never went to him. It turns out he was the guy that did the movie of that tour. So he wanted to use oh, in no. the movie. I missed my big opportunity. That's why I had to go to play music instead of you know doing interviews. That reminds me, I, I'm currently undergoing a, a tiny bit of a career renaissance thanks to documentaries on HBO and Netflix. Friends from around the world started contacting me a couple of weeks ago when the uh, Allen versus Farrow documentary on HBO about Woody right. and Mia uh, came on because I covered that trial for two agonizing months. Uh, it was a custody hearing. It wasn't really a trial. And in the documentary, they used a significant portion of, of my voice on the final day of the trial. And the same thing happened with the Netflix documentary about the notorious B.I.G., they used a portion of, of a report I did on uh, a shooting incident involving uh, Tupac. So all of a sudden, and, and by the way, I get no residuals. They don't ask me for permission. They don't even put at the at the end, thanks. They just buy the footage from CNN. So there you go. You don't get any courtesy of or, you know, no? nothing like but, that. Too but I get friends from around the world literally saying, hey, was that you I heard on TV <laughs> last night? <laughs> That's cool. All right. So you did more than just entertainment, though, right? Talk about some of the non-entertainment related things. Well, like I said, I went to Beirut, Lebanon. Interestingly, I was called in to ABC Radio News on a Sunday morning, the morning that a bomb went off in a Marine barracks in Beirut, killing about um, 
uh, a couple hundred uh, U.S. Marines. It was a terrible tragedy. Uh, and I was called in because I had interviewed Marines there uh, just three or four weeks earlier, and they wanted me to compare the lists of casualties and go through my cassette tapes and find out if I'd interviewed any of them. And I had. So they were able to say just a few weeks ago, private so-and-so told ABC's Mark Shearer what it was like being in Beirut. That was a sad day. Uh, two days later, the U.S. invaded Grenada, this tiny island in the Caribbean. And from that day on, there were people who thought this was like a diversion. We had just suffered a terrible setback uh, the, in, in uh, Lebanon. And if we could go on this crazy invasion of Grenada because some medical students school students were endangered by a, uh, you know, a hot political climate there, um, we, could, we could have an instant victory and people would forget the most recent loss. So I get sent down there only to discover that you can't get there. They were keeping the press out. For the first 48 hours, no press could cover the invasion. Why? The Pentagon felt that the Vietnam experience was a bad one for them when the, the, the U.S. news media supposedly turned against Vietnam, um, most notably Walter Cronkite. This saying was, we lost the Vietnam War when we lost Walter Cronkite. So we were trying not to let that happen again. Meanwhile, we were trying everything we could to get from Barbados, 100 miles over to this tiny town, Grenada, to tiny island. And uh, we were renting fishing boats and stuff like that, but being turned back by uh, U.S. Navy destroyers. So once we got there, it was pretty much... Uh, over. However, they still insisted on flying us there and back in the morning and the evening on C-130 transport planes, which are those big, lumbering, loud planes. They gave us earplugs. And, I, and I, at night, I'd be sitting in the back trying to listen to the interviews I had done so I could feed them from my hotel in Barbados. But over the roar of the plane, you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> it was a very, very strange war to cover. And I use the air quotation marks for war. Because it wasn't much of a war. That's the so-called war that uh, Clint Eastwood did the movie about, if I remember. Yes, afterwards. yes, yes, he did. Yes, I remember that. Now, all of your experience was it all on radio, or did you do television as well? That's the thing. Uh, in the early '90s, uh, a friend of mine who was on television kept saying, "We at least meet with my agent, because you should be on television." I said, "I don't want to be on television," but I met with the agent. And she said, you know what? I know the producer at Good Morning America. You work for a division of ABC, the radio network. Um, I'm going to talk to him about they were going to send Ron Reagan, the president's son, was a correspondent for Good Morning America. They were going to send him to Moscow to cover Billy Joel's groundbreaking tour of Russia. And then they, they pulled him out. And so this agent, who wasn't even my agent then, said, you have a guy in your own network who's going there for the radio network. Why don't you give him a try? And I did two stories from Moscow, one about rock in Russia and the other about Billy Joel's opening night in Moscow. And when I came back, they said, do you want to be the music correspondent for Good Morning America? I said, sure. And I stayed at the radio network. So I was doing double duty for about two and a half years. Um, but then things changed and ABC shrunk some more in terms of their personnel. And I, but I landed on my feet at CNN working for a show called Showbiz Today. And that meant Number one, that I was going to be covering entertainment news mostly, but I was hired because the producer there wanted somebody who could cover breaking news when a celebrity was arrested or had an accident and the phone rang at four o'clock in the morning. They needed someone who could do a breaking news story. They had lots of people on staff who were really good at going to movie junkets and interviewing movie stars, but nobody with that kind of hard news experience. So bingo, I got that job. 
And there was enough of that to satisfy my news junkiness. But then all of a sudden, I found myself going to press junkets and interviewing movie stars. So I was going to say that if you were the guy that was interviewing when the rock, when the when the movie stars were arrested, when they got drunk, when they did something embarrassing, you must have been very active because it happens all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a gas, really. We are talking with Mark Shearer, who has had a an incredible career in communications, in radio, also in television. You were with ABC and CNN. Those were your two prominent uh, networks, am I correct? Definitely. How has CNN in particular changed since you were there? And what years were you there? Uh, I was there f- uh, for 12 years, spanning the decade of the 90s primarily. So it was still doing real news in, in the daytime and nighttime instead of having nighttime uh, hosts with political points of view. That was done in reaction to the rise of, of Fox News, which may, you know, which tried to do the same thing and was making huge inroads. So CNN kind of caved in uh, to that and started having their own opinion-oriented shows in the nighttime, but still tried to cover and still was kind of the go-to place for breaking news on a large scale, on an international scale. But overall, the, the the television news business was being affected just as every aspect of journalism was by the availability of information on, on uh, online and the, the rise of the citizen journalist and and tweeting by by reporters on the scene of a story. You used to go to a story, spend spend hours there and then come back and you know put your report together. But the pressure was on now to write a few lines of, of Twitter, and so that this 24-hour reporting thing was essentially uh, altering uh, the television news business in, in ways that, it's, that are still being felt. And I'm sure the depth of the reporting has been completely different than when you were doing it. Totally, totally. And, and, and the decrease in the size of the staff uh, results in more sloppiness and uh, mistakes and errors because there used to be a num- number enough layers of edit- editorial editors to make for good journalism. Now, all kinds of sloppiness gets on the air, misspellings and mispronunciations and, and bad information, you know? And one other thing that's happened as I was uh, transitioning out of the career of journalism was we had a president who labeled news media people enemies of the people. And the damage from that still is not fully known. Um, that was a horrible blow to the business of journalism, which is an honorable profession, and I hope always will be. Yes, and uh, the the rise of Fox News and the fact that now we have kind of competing facts, which is crazy, of course. You know, Fox has their facts, as they call them. CNN and MSNBC have their facts. Never the tween shall meet. And you have people that are exposed to things that may or may not be real and they form their opinions on the basis of this. And that's got to be a tremendous blow to real journalists like yourself. It really is. And in many ways, I'm glad I am um, for the most part out of the business and I'm, I'm still uh, exercising my creative side by telling all these stories blog with hyphens in between all the words, if anybody's interested in reading some more of these stories, like like the ones I've just shared with you. Well, 
as we have said, the, the journalism business, like so many other businesses, has changed. It's evolved, maybe for the better, maybe not for the better. I am heartened by the fact that uh, on the newsprint side, even though so many newspapers have gone out of business or been rendered into almost nothing, you do have something like the New York Times being able to sell online subscriptions that seem to be going really well. Um, you know, that's an anchor for a lot of people to have still the New York Times being able to report. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, I am dedicated, uh, a devoted follower of the New York Times from my days in high school in the 60s, when for social studies, you had to get a subscription. And instead of studying in study hall, I read the sports page of the Times, especially the college hockey section. And <laughs> little did I know that some some time later, my byline would be on that college hockey thing. Uh, so that that would you talk about having a dream. I never dreamed that I would be have a byline in the New York Times, but I did. That's remarkable. So right now, I'd like to tell people where they can follow you, where they can reach you if they'd like to. Again, I have a blog that you can comment on and uh, com converse with called Reporter on the Road with hyphens between all the words dot blog. And that is uh, pretty much where I uh, do all my writing these days. Okay. I'd like to thank my guest on this episode, Mark Schurer, who has had a fascinating career in both radio and television, in entertainment and in hard news, a combination that you do not see these days. Remember to get your complimentary dream roadmap where I lay out my five steps to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. And now we'd like to play for you the song that you heard at the beginning of this episode. It's called Slapshot. And it's a song that I wrote for the album that my band Project Grand Slam recorded in 2016 called The Queen's Carnival. I hope you like it. See you all next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.